I always ask everybody this question. The moment you realized we did it, I'm a Super Bowl champion, what was the first thing that went through your mind? Uh, does Tom Brady have another chance to score a touchdown? <laughs> <laughs>Hey everybody, what's up? Trey Wingo here. Hope you're enjoying season two of Half Forgotten History. We're off to a great start. And remember, the theme for season two is very simple. It's all about the ring. You don't got a Super Bowl championship. You don't get to talk to us. We're very happy to be partnering with DraftKings for season two. Make sure you use the promo code Wingo when you download and use the DraftKings app. We'll get to picks a little bit later. But this episode is with a guy who made sure the greatest upset in the history of Super Bowls actually happened. A member of one of the greatest, if not the greatest, tight end draft class in the history of the NFL draft. Pride of Stanford University, none other than Zach Ertz. We had a chance to speak with Zach after they had fired their head coach, Doug Peterson, but before they had hired their new head coach, Nick Sirianni. Zach, what's up, man? How are we? Hey, Trey. How you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Um, obviously, it wasn't the season in Philadelphia you guys wanted. It was a strange season with everything that went on. Uh, how would you categorize 2020 as a season for the Eagles? Yeah, it was tough, obviously. Um, you go 4-11-1, and and things obviously didn't turn out the way we wanted. We obviously had high expectations for ourselves. Every time I've played in this city, you have high expectations for the football team. And this year, we just fell much short of those expectations. Um, obviously, we dealt with a ton of adversity. Um, obviously, everyone dealt with the COVID adversity and dealing with that. But we just dealt with a lot of injuries, um, a lot of things that just didn't go our way. Um, and we're never really able to play a complete football game, whether it be the offense, defense, or special teams. Um, and we could never just put our finger on one thing that would change everything. You know, it was one of those things, one game it would be this, the next game it would be that. Um, so as a leader of the team, it was definitely tough trying to right the ship. Um, but it was just one of those years. And then there was the news that came after the season that Doug Peterson was fired as the head coach. How surprised were you that that happened? I mean, I think everyone was a little surprised to a certain extent. Uh, you know, we, we, we won a, the biggest game ever three years ago. Um, but at the end of the day, 4-11 and 1 things aren't going to stay the same. That's just the nature of this business. You're not going to uh, rinse and repeat when you have a season like we had and they uh, uh, obviously felt change was needed. Obviously, uh, Mr. Lurie and Howie came up with the decision. And um, I think everyone supports them wholeheartedly. You know, they, they've been doing this for a long time. They've won a lot of football games around here. They know what the expectations are in this city. Everyone was a little surprised. You know, Coach Peterson is someone that I will forever love, forever feel indebted to, to a certain extent, just because I loved playing for him. I loved him as a person. But for me, I mean, I was a little surprised, but I understood it at the end of the day. Yeah, you put out a really great tweet basically saying all the love for him. And Chris Long uh, did the same thing as well. You know, it is, it, it's kind of a weird thing, right? Because, yeah, you guys were 4 and 11 1 last year, but you made it to the playoffs each of the last two years. And oh, by the way, you won the Super Bowl, taking down the Patriots with a backup quarterback, which we'll get to in a little bit. So it does make you wonder where is the line of, hey, look at all the good versus this one season, which obviously was horrible. Yeah, I think, I mean, this business is all about what have you done for me lately? That's just the bottom line. When everyone knows the standards, whether you're here or anywhere else, it's all about what have you done for me lately? And this year we just didn't play well enough. That's the bottom line. Now there's not, there's going to be a lot of changes in this, on this team because of that, you don't, you just don't rinse and repeat and expect something else. 
Um, so for us, obviously the change started at the top. Unfortunately, as players, you feel a lot of responsibility for that, for him being the one to be let go. Um, and it's disappointing, but no matter what happens with Doug, no matter where he goes, no matter what the guys do from here on out, we'll never forget the memories that we had with him. And, you know, football is something that you bring 53 guys together with one common goal led by a great coaching staff. Um, and the memories you make is the best reason you play the game. It's not for the catches. It's not for the yards. It's for the interactions, the relationships you build each and every week, each and every season. And so that part will never be taken away from us. Do you think what happened in that week 17 game had anything to do with this decision? Or do you think that had already been decided before that? I have no idea. The week 17 game obviously got garnered a lot of attention. Um, I've, I've never spoke to anyone in charge about why we did this, why we did that. The plan going into the week was for Nate to play. And so I was not surprised by any means when Nate took the field. You know, Nate's a guy, people are kind of, oh, they put Nate in, they put Nate in. Nate's first game in the NFL, he went 19 for 23 and set the completion percentage record. So this isn't a guy that just, we just took off the street. He'd been in our system for four years. Doug felt he was ready to play. Week 17, obviously, um, for us, was meaningless to a certain extent. It's not like we win and we were in. Um, and so for us, we I understood it to a certain extent, um, and I respect that decision. You know, it's funny. Like you said, three years ago, you won the Super Bowl with a backup quarterback. So what would you say to those other teams who are looking for a head coach if if they called you and asked you about Doug Peterson? I would be the best recommendation anyone could give. I mean, just the way that, I mean, his resume speaks for itself, I feel like, obviously. Um, when you win a Super Bowl, take a team to the playoffs, and just leading men, um, I don't know if there's ever be a player that could really speak poorly of Doug as a person, Doug as the coach. And I just, I just think for all those teams looking for a head coach, he's a guy that's going to hold guys accountable. He's going to set the standard of being a physical, tough football coach. And he's also going to, uh, he, the best thing about Doug is he truly understood when to push us harder, get on us, grind us, and when he had to pull back and kind of let us kind of recalibrate to a certain extent and then go again. Um, and Doug had a great way of leading us in that regard. So that was the story at the end of the season. But during the back half of the season, there was a switch of quarterbacks from Carson Wentz to Jalen Hurts. How much did you think that was going to happen? Or was that also a surprise when, when they made that move? I mean, I, th I think there, there were inclinations that that was going to happen. Like I said, when we were three and 10 at the time, you can't just keep doing the same thing over and over. And I felt for Carson, obviously, because one person isn't going to make or break the offense. And a lot of us weren't playing up to the standards. I had missed the five previous games before that. We, Deshaun, Alshon, all these guys missed a ton of football. We, I think we played 14 different offensive line combinations in 16 games. The situation wasn't set up to have a lot of success regardless of who was playing quarterback. And um, Jalen played the – I think there was a substitution at halftime. Jalen came in for Carson at halftime of the Packers game. And so for that following week, you kind of understood that that was a good chance. Um, and it was tough for us because as offensive players, me, Jason, Kelsey – uh, Miles, all these guys, we feel like we let Carson down to a certain extent. You know, they feel like that that's the easiest switch to make when in reality, no one was playing up to the standard that we should have been this year. And I think everyone knows how I feel about Carson as a person, as a player. Um, I think he's still one of the best quarterbacks in the league. And I think the sky's the limit for him. Obviously, you guys had a ton of success. 
the Wentz to Ertz connection, the Z to Z connection, uh, did set a record one year. You you caught more touchdowns, or excuse me, more passes than any tight end in NFL history. How do you how do you fix Carson? Oh man, that's above my pay grade. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I just talked to him as a friend, uh, and I'm, yeah. I'm the biggest supporter of him. Build him up, um, just like when I when I'm in a rough place or going through a rough patch. He does the same thing for me our relationship is just so much bigger than football. Like we don't, this isn't a football relationship that we have, like a lot of the guys and relationships that I have with the guys. Um, so for me, I care about Carson, the person first and foremost, and then the football player is second to that. Um, yeah. so I leave his quarterback coach, all, all that to him. I just make sure he's good between the ears um, and in his heart. And so for me, that's all I care about. Yeah. And it seems like that was some of the things that sort of, got to him with the way the whole Jalen Hurts thing went down. But you mentioned two names. You mentioned Kelsey and you mentioned Carson. The three of you, after that last game, sat on the field for about 90 minutes. And then you had a very emotional media session after that. I don't think people – I think people sometimes look at players as not a person but a thing, like a widget. You know, like, oh, we'll just stick this guy in here and he'll do that. And that showed the real emotional side of it. I mean, there was a lot that you guys were trying to process – wondering about a lot of different things and the emotion that came out was so raw. I think people need to understand how much that matters to guys and, and for them to be seen as what you are people, not just a thing. Yeah. I mean, I think, like you said, it's, it's, we live in a uh, society where people always want the next best thing. They always think that they could just substitute X and place Y in there. And they don't think of us as people oftentimes, but I was drafted here when I was 22 years old. I was a kid. I was lived in California my entire life. Um, I played here for eight seasons. I grew up. My wife and I got married. My mom and my brother moved out here. So for me, this has been home for so long. And this year, 2020, was so tough. You know, the best part about sports is being able to have those interactions, being able to sit in the locker room and talk, seeing how a guy's doing during the week, what he's going through mentally off the field, emotionally off the field. And this year, it just, it just wasn't allowed. We just weren't allowed yeah. to have these conversations where me, Carson, and Kelsey would just sit in the cafeteria before, like after team meetings Saturday night and just talk for an hour and a half in there um, before we had to go to the hotel. So we kind of used that opportunity after the game to just talk, you know, and just kind of enjoy each other um, and just talk. And so for us, obviously, um, it was a tough not being able to do that this year, but it was fun Sunday night to kind of do it on the field that we all, we have so many memories on, so many great memories. And that's the thing too, like this year was so tough for so many reasons, but like this one year isn't gonna change any of our experience, the way we view Philadelphia. The Philadelphia yeah. Eagles, we love this place. And I think that's, this is home for us. We, we've invested so much, we love this city, we love the people, it's given us so much in return, um, but I don't think we could ever repay how we truly feel about this city. Did you even have any idea how long you guys were out there? Did someone have to say, you know, you guys have been here for an hour and a half already? Uh, no one told us, actually. Someone told us that we were on, like, TVs were following us. And so at that point, we kind of left. So it was like, okay, maybe yeah. this is going to be a bigger deal than we really meant it to be. But that's kind of, it, it, it got late, you know. When, I think we were out there until one thirty, something like that. I think what you just said, I, most people don't understand. Like you couldn't have, like, to me, that's why football is great. To me, it is the ultimate team sport, football and football, because I don't get the missus mad at me. You know, football and football are the ultimate team sports. And you have to have that bond. You have to have that that sort of togetherness. And you're right. You, 
that was not a part of the 2020 season for anybody, really. Yeah, I mean, I, I will go down. I mean, I love my wife, obviously, and her sport is amazing. Uh, but I think football, the sport of football, our American football is the ultimate team sport. It takes 11 people that can only dictate half of the game. And then you have the 11 other people that are able to dictate the other half of the game, including special teams thrown in there. Um, and if you have one weak link on any of those 22 players, it's going to be extremely difficult to win football games. If one person messes up a play on offense or defense, it's either going to be a great play or a terrible play. Um, and just everyone's got to be on the same page. And so it takes so much time to get that done. It's not like you can just bring 11, 11 of the best players in the league and throw them out on the field and they're immediately going to be successful. Um, it takes time. It takes chemistry. Um, that's why everyone loves the game. Yeah, it is to me the ultimate team game, and and that's what I absolutely love about it. So that's how the season ended, but your career in Philly began with the 2013 draft. And I'd forgotten just how deep the 2013 draft was. I knew you and, and Tyler and Travis, but then we're talking about Vance McDonald, Levine Toilolo, Jack Doyle, and his incredible beard undrafted. I mean, there are certain wide receiver drafts that I know, and I can go list everybody in that draft. Like the 96 wide receiver draft was incredible. This might be the single greatest tight end draft of all time. Yeah. Jordan Reed, my guy too in there. Jordan yeah. Reed. Yes. Levine Toilolo, my other Stanford guy still playing. Um, I'm going to go down saying that's the best tight end draft class of all time. I'm not, not, I mean, I think Gronk and Jimmy Graham were the same draft class. The two of them, obviously amazing, amazing players. Top heavy. Yeah, <laughs> but our, our, the depth of our draft class, I feel like, kind of separates us. And I'm going to go down saying we're the greatest tight end class of all time. As you should. And and I know we've had this conversation before, but the name in the draft that year was Tyler Eifert. It was the name. And a lot of people were saying, oh, he's the best tight end in this draft. And you and I did a, a little chat on NFL Live before the draft. And I said, does it bother you that everyone's saying that? And you're like, Hell yeah, it bothers me because I want to prove I'm just as good as everybody else. Yeah, you know, I made that. Uh, it was probably the 22-year-old single-minded, you know. <laughs> but the whole draft process was me and Tyler, me and Tyler. And so it just got to the point where it was just always that. And so, I mean, Tyler was, looking back on it, unbelievable player coming out of Notre Dame. Everyone ended up with it where they were supposed to be. I was meant to be in Philadelphia. Um but he was a heck of a player. He's still a great player. Um, he, he had a ton of injuries, unfortunately. But he's one of the most talented players I've seen coming out of college football as a tight end. Now, but you mentioned Levine Toilolo, your teammate also in that draft. Uh, you know, there have been so many tight ends out of Stanford. What is it about the system that they're doing or the coaching or the recruiting at Stanford that brings so many NFL players, Dalton Schultz right now for the, for the Cowboys. What is it about the tight end spot at Stanford that makes them so successful and so prominent in the NFL? Yeah, I think, I mean, obviously there's a multitude of factors. Uh, I think it started back when Jim Harbaugh was there uh, saying he wanted to be a physical football team. He wanted to have a fullback. He wanted to have two good tight ends. Um, and so that kind of set the tempo. And then when my freshman year at Stanford, I think we had seven tight ends in the tight end room. I think six of them went to the NFL. And so we had Jimmy Dre, who was the fifth year senior, Conrad Rulin, Rest Hissel, Kobe Fleener, myself, uh, Levine, and Ryan Hewitt, those seven, those six guys. Um, and so I think a lot of it comes to coaching. Obviously, we had, we've had great tight end coaches at Stanford. Uh, but they've also 
put us in situations to challenge ourselves and not just a lineup next to the tackle and put your hand in a three-point stance every play. Um, they flexed us out. They put me as a single receiver on the backside. And so they just use us in a way there at Stanford where you're going to be a primary option. You're going to grow your game, not only on the line of scrimmage, but as a route runner. And so for me, it's the best, in my opinion now, it's definitely tight end you. Obviously, Iowa, Miami have great arguments. Sure. But in terms of developing tight ends, uh, I think Stanford is the place to be. And now they obviously have a great pipeline. You know, Hooper, Austin Hooper, Dalton, myself, Levine, um, still playing. So for us, Caden Smith in New York, uh, Kobe Parkinson, just a fourth round pick to the Seahawks. Um, so for us, I feel like it's kind of a pipeline. Listen, the one thing I've always noticed about this when we had players on the show and talked about them, it, they almost took more pride in their college situation and what that meant to them. Like how much, how much trash talk is there done on teams uh, about when alma maters play each other and how much of that goes back and forth in the locker room? Oh yeah. There's definitely a lot of bickering, um, a lot of <laughs> kind of uh, subtle jabs. You know, we had Richard Rogers who went to Cal and our tight end. Yeah. Um, Cal Stanford, big game. Um, the game. They, yeah. They beat us last year, but all is right in the world this year. We, we found a way to win. I think that was the problem with 2020. Stanford lost the big game 20, at the end of 2019. And it just set up, set up 2020 to be a tough year for everyone. So hopefully the world is right now. Stanford got the ax back. And so, yeah. yeah, we blame the Cardinal for that. And now they're going to get things right in 2020. I'm with it, man. That works. And, and as you said, everybody was where they were supposed to be in the draft. And you got drafted by Philadelphia. And season two of Half Forgotten History is all about the rings. So why don't we take a break? And when we come back, we'll talk about one of the weirdest, most improbable runs in the history of Super Bowls. How the Eagles, with a backup quarterback, beat the Tom Brady-led Patriots at their absolute peak. Coming right back. Stay with us. Hey, football fans. The moment you've been waiting for all season long is finally just around the corner. And DraftKings, the official daily fantasy partner of Super Bowl 55, is bringing back their golden ticket giveaway with up to $55 million in prizes up for grabs. All you have to do to get your share of these huge prizes is enter DraftKings' free Super Bowl prediction challenge. Download the app now, enter the free prediction challenge, and answer questions like, we'll score last, and boom, get ready to make it rain. So let's make a few picks that might help you win a million bucks. Say the MVP. Patrick Mahomes is plus 105. Tom Brady is plus 225 because quarterbacks almost invariably win the MVP. Look, I'm not going to tell you who I think is going to win, but I think the best player in the game right now is playing, and he's a quarterback, and his name is Patrick Mahomes. You might want to push your money in that direction. Uh, another one that's interesting, total Chiefs points over under 29 and a half. They routinely score 30-plus in the postseason. Like the last time they didn't, Mahomes missed most of the second half of that game against the Browns. So I really, really like the over in that situation. And then you can do really weird prop bets like the coin toss. Not necessarily will it be heads or tails, but will the guy who calls it get it right? For example, if he calls heads, will he get heads or will they call tails? So download the DraftKings app now and use the promo code WINGO to enter the free $55 million Super Bowl Prediction Challenge. Everyone gets an instant prize up to $25,000 for just playing. So use the promo code WINGO now and enter the free $55 million Super Bowl Challenge only at DraftKings, the official daily fantasy partner of Super Bowl 55. Terms, conditions, and eligibility restrictions apply. 
See DraftKings.com for details. And do not forget to use the promo code WINGO. All right, uh, thanks for staying with us. Back with Zach Ertz on this episode of Half Forgotten History, talking about the Eagles' run to Super Bowl 52. Uh, and for most of that season, you guys were the best team in football. It, it was just rolling. Everything was going. When in the 2017 season did you guys start to think, hey, man, we might be able to pull this off? Looking back on that year, there's so many um, kind of memorable moments. And going into the year, we thought we had a chance to be pretty good. Um, 2016, the year before, we finished strong. I think we were five and one without Lane Johnson or with Lane Johnson that year. He missed 10 games, but the, he was, we were five and one with him. Best right tackle in the league makes my job a lot easier. Um, 2017 comes around the Miami Dolphins. Actually, they went to the playoffs the year before they come to Philly for training camp. And I'm going to be honest here. We killed them in practice for three days. <laughs> we destroyed them. And so they went to the playoffs last year. We're like, man, maybe we got a chance to be all right. Um, we go down to Washington. We win that game. Following game, we go to Kansas City. We lose. Um, and I think we ran 10 in a row. We won 10 in a row. And Thursday night, we're playing the Carolina Panthers, who was a stud. Cam was rolling. Greg Olson was rolling. They had Keekley, Thomas Davis. And we go down there and win Thursday night in a barn burn, a great football game. Um, and after that game, really propelled us, in our opinion, to kind of Hey, we could really do this. We we got something special. I don't think anyone knew at that time Super Bowl good because we had never experienced that, obviously. Uh, but that that Thursday night football game against Carolina is something that I think flipped the switch in all of our eyes. Well, you could tell that you guys were feeling it that year because Malcolm Jenkins was leading the dance crew on the defense whenever they would make a big play. And it just it seemed like everything was moving. And then obviously the game against the Rams at the Coliseum where Carson gets hurt. Now you guys won that game, but when you saw the play or saw him limp off, like how deflating was that at the moment? Yeah, so I was actually hurt that game. I had a concussion against Seattle the week before, so I was on the sideline. And I see him going dive into the end zone and like kind of come up gingerly. I think there was a holding call, so they called it back and he had to stay in there. You could just tell something wasn't right. He pretty much broke the huddle didn't move, stayed in the huddle, stayed exactly where he ended up, called the next play, ended up throwing a touchdown to Alshon on the drive. Um, but you just knew something wasn't right. And so he comes off the sideline, take him into the tent. Um, and he's just like, comes out, just like towel over his head, shaking his head. And so he's got to walk up to the locker room. And I just like, I'm just going to be done watching this game. I'm going to go be with Carson. Um, and so we, I just walked up to the locker room with them and he was just like, man, something's not right. Something's right, not right. We ended up winning the game. Foles obviously did his thing the second half and, um, Malcolm kind of breaks the team down. We win the NFC East that day. Malcolm kind of breaks the team down. Like, Hey, you know, Carson, we love you. Like we wouldn't be here with where we are, but we have to have all the confidence in the world that we're still the same football team going forward and don't let our standards, don't let our expectations lessen because Nick is playing quarterback because we all have a lot of confidence in Nick, obviously. Um, and so I think that was tough in the moment. Obviously, he was he should have won MVP that year. I'm going to be honest. He played 13 games better than anyone was playing that year. No question. For Nick to come in and kind of be Nick and be special and the guys – kind of raised our level of play around him. I was talking to Malcolm after 
that week. And I was like, we don't need, we shouldn't expect Nick to raise his game. We all got to raise our games around him. So to take the burden off him, I think that's what you saw. I think you saw 21 other guys, both sides of the ball kind of raise their collective game around Nick. Yeah. And it took a while because the first couple of games with Nick coming in, yeah, they were close games or it wasn't, it wasn't the same mojo, but you got into the postseason as the number one seed and you take on uh, the Falcons in Philadelphia. What was the mindset going into that game? Like, okay, the offense had been okay, but you weren't playing at the same level. So what was your approach to that game against the Falcons? Yeah, the offense wasn't playing great. Maybe an understatement. Um, I'm being nice. You're, you're giving me your time. I'm being nice. Week 17, week 16, we play the Raiders Monday night football on Christmas. Offense did barely enough to win the football game. That's when we stealed home field advantage. We had nothing to play for week 17. Doug says, offense, defense, you guys can rest. Offense, you guys need to practice. Get your stuff together. Go out and score against the Cowboys week 17. Week 17 comes to play the first quarter, zero points as an offense. Most teams do that following week as a bye or as like a rest for the, to, to get guys healthy. Doug said, we're not resting. We did training camp practices Wednesday, Thursday of that week to get everyone comfortable with Nick because Nick didn't play in the pre Nick didn't have a training camp. He had a little elbow thing going on. So none of us got any reps with Nick. So we only got reps during the season with Nick. And obviously at that point, you're still working through everything. So Doug did the great like genius, in my opinion, really, in my opinion, the week that we won the super, the reason we won the Super Bowl was that week. We were able to get back to basics with Nick, get Nick confidence in all of us. So training camp practice, ones against the ones, Wednesday, Thursday. And then going into the Falcons game, knowing what we had just done in practice against one another, it's like, all right, now we can go beat up on someone else. And so we were, we were kind of relishing the opportunity to go play the Falcons. And it was a defensive battle. I think the final score was like 17 to 12 or something. I don't know. The first. It was a very low scoring game. And so we just did enough to win that game. And then the following game, we played the Vikings. And that was the best Lincoln financial field experience I probably ever had. It was incredible. It's funny you say that because I talked to Case Keenum that year at the Super Bowl. He's like, yeah, I didn't like it very much. <laughs> he went into some very specific details about some fans in Philadelphia. But people forget, like, the first drive, they went right down the field, touchdown to, to Kyle Rudolph, and they're up 7-0. And I'm like, I think this is a problem for Philadelphia. And there was there was one play, I think, on their second drive where Chris Long, of all people, got in there and pressured uh, pressured case and there was an interception and that turned the game around and really just changed changed the game uh, and really from there we just were unstoppable on offense anything that we did worked Harrison Smith was like man it doesn't matter what play you're running it's going to work apparently today uh, <laughs> and Nick was I mean we caught a flea flicker for a touchdown we ran like a seven and go to me on the sideline right before half uh, Nick was just playing out of his mind it was phenomenal. And when did Lane start, Lane Johnson, your incredibly awesome and strangely weird uh, right tackle, when did he start bringing out the dog mask? Was it before the the Falcons game? I, I mean, I specifically remember he and Chris wearing them after the Falcons game. I think when did they start putting the dog masks out there? Yeah, so it was after the Falcons game they brought it out because that whole week everyone was like, it's Philadelphia Eagles, first one seed to be the underdogs and – in the playoff first round. And so the Falcons come in as the favorite. Everyone picked. We have, I mean, I think I might have still have screenshots of everyone at ESPN 
Maybe not you, but everyone else. Oh, no, I picked him. No, I, I guilty as charged, sir. Uh, everyone picking the Falcons to beat us. And so after that game, uh, they bring out the dog mask. And they were talking about it the night before at dinner that they were like ordering them and they were going to bring it out. I was like, you guys are crazy. And needless to say, it was kind of our mantra that year. Well, it, it certainly worked. And I did. I did. And there's video proof of this. I did put on the dog mask when we made our selections on the show in Minneapolis. So I did pick you guys to win the game. Oh, I didn't feel really good about it, but I thought at this point, what the hell? Sure. So uh, then we get to the game, right? And, and this is why uh, this is my pet peeve. And I will die on this hill. I hate the fact that wins and losses are a quarterback stat. It's a team game. Teams win games. Teams lose games. I mean, Tom Brady statistically had his greatest Super Bowl of all time in Super Bowl 52. They just lost. I mean, there was one turnover in that game, which came late, and uh, that was a big part of it. But that game was so strange. Like, everything about that game was weird, including the Philly special play. So take us through what was going through your mind when you realized that was the play they were going to run. So I think it was like third and two on the, we were about to go in and we had a play call. And for some reason, we were laid out of the huddle and we were about to get a delay game. The play call was just a generic, basic inside run. And so I think we ended up calling a timeout and like Nick goes over to the sideline and was like, they had that interaction. I think that everyone's saying, hey, do you want Philly Philly or whatever? Even though it was called Philly Special, Nick, I'm not going to hold against you that you asked for Philly Philly. We're just going to let that go. (laughs) So I get over, I'm talking to my tight end coach, like, hey, what do you think the play is going to be? What's the play? And he goes, it's going to be Philly Special. I'm like, what? Really special. It's third and two. We got to score a touchdown here. <laughs> and so, needless to say, it was a great play call. The guts on Doug to kind of bring that play out in the Super Bowl right. was like, oh, we're definitely going for this. Because I think the play was right before the half. And it was like, yeah, if we all we needed was a field goal. And he was like, no, we're not doing that. We're going Philly special for a touchdown. And it worked. Well, it's interesting. And that play has taken on a, a life of its own. It's become mythical. But I... This is another thing I firmly believe. It's only mythical because they won the game. And if you guys hadn't won the game, that play would not be looked at in any way, shape, or form the way it is now. And you won the game because of the touchdown you caught. And, of course, that was at the apex of the does anybody know what the hell a catch is portion of the NFL history, right? Because we had the play in the regular season with Jesse James, the tight end for the Steelers, who everybody in the world, it looked like he had scored, but they said he hadn't scored. And then the, came, the story came out that, well, for next year, they're going to look to maybe adjust that rule. And on your catch that put you guys up, which was eventually the winning score, there was a slight bobble of the ball. And a lot of us were wondering, all right, uh, what's going to happen here? But there was never a doubt in your mind that that was going to be a touchdown, right? I caught the ball at the five-yard line and I scored a touchdown. How could I, I caught it cleanly. I don't like, it was never a doubt to me that I scored. I caught the ball. I took like three steps and dove for the end zone. When I crossed the plane, like at that point, I'm a runner. And so once you cross the plane, it's a touchdown. And then I hit the ground and obviously I wish I just held it secure. So we didn't have to sit there for three minutes. What felt like three hours on the football field, waiting for them to review it. Um, To me, it was never in doubt. There was Another catch, maybe a little more controversial than mine uh, for us, but that was a touchdown. But for me, that play was as cut and dry as it could be. 
Yeah, I know the other touchdown you're talking about. There was a slight bobble there. Um, but it's funny, like, like just so you know, like growing up, that was always a touchdown. There's a play from Super Bowl 12, and you can look it up if you want. It's a receiver for the Cowboys named Butch Johnson. He was from California, by the way, went to Cal. So you probably hate him. But okay. he caught it. He caught a long touchdown pass from Roger Staubach, and he caught it diving, and he caught it over the end line. And then as he hit the ground, the ball rolled out, and the refs were like, yeah, it's a touchdown. I'm like, we made this so much more difficult than it ever needed to be. If you have possession of the ball when you cross the line, that's it. End of discussion. And we're finally there. But there was a long review. Like, was there any part of you when they were reviewing that were like, they're not going to do this to me, right? So I never I never let that creep in. But me and Trey Burton are literally – we're. We're waiting on the field for the play, and we're literally just having a casual conversation on the field. You know, there's a minute left in the Super Bowl. There might have been a thousand minutes on practice field. That's what the conversation felt like. Trey was like, "If they overturn this, the city of Philadelphia is just going to be off the map. There's going to be so much revolt and rebellion in the city that it's just going to be wiped off the map." Those are that's a moment that I will probably never forget from that game. You know, I'll remember the catches and the post game and all that stuff. But that, that conversation with Trey. Amidst all the craziness and the chaos, uh, to us, there was never a chance they would overturn it. And they didn't. And then, of course, obviously, Chris Long comes up with the almost sack that would have ended the game. But eventually, the Hail Mary to Gronk comes up short. You guys win the game. I always ask everybody this question. The moment you realized, we did it. I'm a Super Bowl champion. What was the first thing that went through your mind? Uh, does Tom Brady have another chance to score a touchdown? <laughs> I don't know, it felt like even now, it doesn't feel like I – when I scored that touchdown in the game, it was like, okay, Tom's going to go score another one, and then we're going to have to come out and score again. Um, so it never really hit you that we won the game, won the Super Bowl, until you're like on the podium, um, seeing with all the confetti flowing, like, man, we really did this. And seeing, seeing Brent Selleck cry, he's the ugliest crier yeah. I think I've ever seen. Um, so it was, it was at that point that I think I, I really realized that we did it. <laughs> so you win the game and you guys are world champs. But as we all know, America undefeated in Super Bowls were 54-0 because we only play America. <laughs> so you have a unique perspective on this because your wife, Julie, has not won but two actual world championships, World Cups. How quickly after that did you say, oh, that's cute but let me show you what I have. Yeah, I mean, obviously it's a little bit of a competition in our household, just like pretty much everything else is. We used to have like, a, we used to play gin rummy all the time. And we used to have to keep a notebook of who was winning and who was losing so that we didn't get carried away where I said I had five wins when I really only had two for the day. So we, we hold each other accountable. Um, so that's something that we love. But um, Julie's won two World Cups. I won one Super Bowl. And like I told you before, I could win five, six, seven Super Bowls. And no matter how many I win, it's going to pale in comparison to her World Cups because I did not beat any world. I, we are the champions of America when you win a Super Bowl. Yeah. And Julie well, is champion of the world. So it really doesn't matter how many I win. She will always trump me. What was your reaction when she won the second World Cup after that? I was in France for a long time. She'll tell a funny story. Uh, I missed the first game when they won 13 nothing against Thailand or whoever they played. So I flew out immediately after mandatory minicamp. And so I was out there training in like a language I couldn't understand, the food I didn't really like. And I give her a hug after the game. And she, she said, I don't know if this is true, but she says my first words were, can we go home now? <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, I'm not going to say that sounds like me, but there's a good chance I may have said that. So that's the goal now. You've got to win at least one more Super Bowl to even have a conversation, right? Yeah, until she wins, until they win the Olympics this summer, and then it's going to be a completely different argument. Uh, But I'm 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 striving for the second or third Lombardi. I need it. Well, listen, you're in an uphill battle in the in the in the family household, but. I think you're doing good everywhere else. Look, sure. man, uh, I've always enjoyed watching you play. So continued success in what happens. And uh, that Super Bowl is still one of the greatest things of all time. Like, how did this happen with a backup quarterback beating Tom Brady at his peak? It's still, do, do you ever think like, it really happened? It still seems like a little far-fetched a little bit to a certain extent, because when you play, it's like, you never look back. You never reflect when you're playing. Like reflection for me is when I'm done playing. And so even after that year, it's always what's next? How can I get better? What can I do better? And you have that time for four months until the off season starts. And then it's like nothing matters. What happened before is not going to help us now. Um, and so reflection for me never really hit that we won the Super Bowl. I think the only thing that changed for that off season was the city of Philadelphia was much happier the joy yeah. of the city was a lot happier until we unveil the banner on Thursday night football against the Falcons and get booed at halftime. They were right back to their ways. <laughs> um, but the joy of the city was definitely on another level. I mean, the guy, one guy was so happy he ate horse poop. So, I mean, that you have to be pretty happy or drunk to do that. I, probably a little bit of both. <laughs> no comment. I'm not, I don't think I'll ever get to a state where that, that occurs. Zach, always a pleasure, man. Best of luck, and we'll see what happens going forward, all right? Yep. Thanks, Trey. So that'll do it for this episode of Half Forgotten History. Once again, our thanks to my friend Zach Ertz for joining us. And don't forget, whenever you download or use the DraftKings app, make sure to use the promo code WINGO. Coming up on our next episode, a man who knows exactly what it feels like to do what the Chiefs are now trying to do for the first time since he did it, repeat as Super Bowl champ. I'm talking about, of course, my good friend, Teddy Bruschi, the man who knows a thing or two about hat and t-shirt games. You get three of those potentially in a season. And the man who invented the phrase that inspired the Patriots after every win. Oh, yeah! Teddy Bruschi with us next time.